When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Heather. This is a flashback episode, a repeat of my July 6th, 2020 interview with reporter Kevin Fagan, who is one of the people I've missed the most the last year. Yes, Kevin is great. I actually called him out of the blue the other day because I missed him and wanted to say hi and catch up for a bit. I'm super excited to see him back in the newsroom soon. Me too. And I think our conversation resonates more than ever this week. Kevin leads a project with four reporters, four photographers and videographers, looking at unsheltered people with deep roots to the Oakland community, all former homeowners who are now among the unhoused in the city. And Kevin himself was unsheltered and writes music about the people he's met covering his beat. Yes, I think he was even a busker at one point in Australia, if memory serves. Um, He's great on the guitar, and he's famous at Chronicle Going Away parties for always having original songs for any employee who is sadly leaving us. And sometimes um, they're a bit R-rated and feature serial killers. He's kind of into the dark side of life. (laughs) And I'm glad you brought that up because we're putting an explicit warning on this episode. There's some profanity and very honest talk about a homeless sex worker. Here's my interview with Kevin recording from our homes early in the pandemic. Welcome back to Total SF, Kevin Fagan, and um, we're apart in our homes here. I'm looking at you right now. I went with the beard for the pandemic. You went with, uh, you're growing your hair out a little bit. Yeah, I've, I can't go get a haircut. I mean, I, I used to have hair down, uh, you know, past my shoulders in the old days, but it's it's kind of heading there now, but uh, I like your beard. It's a good look. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I... I See, you brought up the old days, and that's one reason that I have you here. I have heard so many kind of snippets of your life, and they're (laughs) all super interesting because in addition to being on our homeless beat and covering some incredible things at the Chronicle over the years, the Zodiac beat, you know, you also uh, have had a really interesting life as a musician, um, and uh, and then it kind of ties into your homeless beat in an interesting way. And I just think it's a great time to discuss it with this big homeless project coming up. So are you in? Are you ready to go down memory lane? I'm there, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Kevin, what started first, the journalism or the music? Um, I'm kind of wondering what your teen years were like and if there were any seeds of any of this back then. Well, it was, yeah, uh, it was it, uh, it was a suburban life. I lived all over the, the West, in California, Nevada, when I was a kid. My dad was going to school. Uh, so, of course, going to school with three kids, you're poor. Um, and I got a taste of what it's like not to have enough food in the house and, you know, wearing, you know, worn out clothes and hand-me-downs and whatnot, which a lot of kids do. Uh, uh, but when I was 14, I got on the school newspaper in Livermore 
and that was it. My my who was, mom. What was the name of the Livermore School newspaper? Because oh, they're always good. El Vaquero. El Vaquero. <laughs> yes, because the Cowboys was the emblem for yeah, the school. Yeah. Uh, and my mom had been a Navy journalist, a journalist in the Navy, uh, posted at Oak Knoll, and that was the highlight of her her life. You know, in in many ways, she just absolutely loved it. Used to tell me. You got to be a journalist. It's uh, it's the best job in the world. And she would tell me stories of covering the Korean War, and one in particular where she interviewed prisoners of war who had to uh, pluck their gangrenous toes out of their feet so they could escape in the snow and it stunk and they got to, to you know freedom and they were bloody. And my mom interviewed them and I thought that's the kind of story I want to do. That so, that sounds like a Kevin Fagan lead right there. Gangrenous. <laughs> you know, if there's an abscess involved. I, Oh yeah, um, so, it, was, it was pretty foul. Yeah. <laughs> so so Livermore, like I'm thinking, you know, because I was on my school newspaper, I drew the comic, and for nice. me it was kind of about sticking it to the man. I mean, that was sort yeah. of my central objective. What what was your early journalism career like? Well, as a freshman in high school, I got on the paper and it hooked me immediately. What I liked was going to see life around me and and talking to people it was your passport to talking to anyone the cool kids which i was not i was kind of a book nerd with you know broken glasses and flood pants uh it, but i could i could go talk to anyone and i loved that and then helping uh make sense of our little enclosed student world i liked that um sticking it to the man that's always a a, a thing to do uh it, it that didn't draw me the most though i i wanted to make things better by helping people understand them and yeah. man that that stuck with me you know that that has always stuck with me i love that i you know being sort of feeling disenfranchised and then having control of information and being the person who who knows things mm. that's kind of what got me into it i i i remember i don't remember the point where i wanted to be a journalist but i remember the point where the rush started and it was when ronald reagan was shot and oh yeah. I was at the school for gifted youngsters, but I got in cuz my sister got in before me. I was like a legacy. So I was ah, like you're I, a humble guy. Humble no, guy. I felt like like I, there were kids who were programming computers at age 12 and I like uh. felt like I knew nothing, but they stuck me in front of this radio and told me run and tell the classroom teachers updates. That was my job, to listen mm. to the radio, take notes and run and tell them updates. And I remember feeling so important and powerful at a time when I never felt like that. Um, yeah. Just running in and being the person with the information. And even though like a lot of my beats now don't, you know, aren't hard news, that's still kind of what I feel like. Like I've got a story to tell that other people don't have. So I'm sorry, we're talking about me too much for this podcast. You've done but, hard news though. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. I remember you as hard news. Good hard <laughs> yeah. news guy. Yes. So that that was a that was a good time for you. What about um, you know beyond that? Um, how did you feel in school? How did you feel about where you wanted to go in your life? Did you have kind of a clear vision, or, or were you not sure? I was a little not sure. Uh, you know, like a lot of kids, my parents got divorced right about the time I got on the school mm -hmm. paper. Things did not work out well. Uh, uh, I uh, I left home when I was sixteen. Uh, before I took. SATs before I graduated. Essentially, I, f I took a whole batch of classes. I loved school. I always have. Uh, I took a bunch of classes and graduated uh, more than a year early. 
Mm. Picked up my diploma at the school office and then took off for Hayward because that's where the community college was. And I figured, well, I can go there for free. And I wound up sleeping in a field for a while. Uh, uh, found a garage that this family rented me on the condition that I helped build it into a room, which I did, and that was fun. And then I cleaned houses at night. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, when I was sleeping in the field, I thought, I'm not going to do this and do something like pumping gas for the rest of my life. I want to be a writer. I want to be a journalist. That had stuck. So mm-hmm. Chabot College, I was on the school paper. Uh, after a year of that, or, you know, close coming to the end of the first year, I thought, well, I got to go to a four-year college. I, I want the real deal, the big deal. So I went to San Jose State. And I was on the school paper there. Loved it. Uh, the, the, the story that sticks for me was um, there were a lot of hookers and drug dealers and homeless people downtown. I loved that. Uh, Hold on just a second. The sure. dog's barking again. So I got to San Jose State and I got on the school paper. Loved it. It was just a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I worked three jobs. Like a lot of state college kids, you're, you're, you're really working a lot in addition to the school. And I loved the school. But I carved out this story for myself where uh, I spent all night in downtown San Jose, which at the time was, shall we say, gritty. <laughs> Drug dealers, hookers, uh, what we called winos back then. Um, and I, I hung out in the jack-in-the-box where guys got mugged, uh, people were shooting up. It was um, it was wonderful. I, it just fascinated me, and I thought this this is a side of life I can understand. Uh, having slept outside, uh, I can ma- help make sense of it, and helping make sense of it can help me understand what I've done, what I've come through, what you know, what can be done to help people like that. So I dug it, and uh, when I got out of college, I. Um, well, I was a, I became a musician in college to help pay the bills. You know, you do gigs at cafes and bars, mm. uh, which was good. Unfortunately, it doesn't pay a whole hell of a lot more now than it did then. <laughs> but it was it was a great way. And so I figured, okay, I can I can do this uh, to travel, and I want to be a journalist. So after after I graduated, I I had saved up enough money to get to Europe. So I thought, I'm going to go spend a year. So I took a guitar and a backpack, and I busked all over Europe, Germany, so France. Yeah. Were you playing covers? Were you playing originals? A little bit of a mix? G- give me the visual here. Oh, I had – it was covers. I'd, I'd written a couple of whiny originals, you know, about failed love <laughs> at the yeah. time. Those don't go over so we, well on the street. <laughs> we knew so much in those years. <laughs> yeah, so wise. <laughs> So wise, yeah. uh, and, and and boy, I'll tell you, I uh, I traveled for a while. Then I got to London, and I had pulled a work permit out of uh, college before I left. Um, and a friend of mine, and actually an old girlfriend, had wound up at the BBC doing rewrite. And I got a hold of her, and we met at wherever the hell we met, and uh, said, "How you doing?" And I I was working at the Hard Rock Cafe as a busboy, which was hilarious. Lots of mm-hmm. strange stuff happened there. She said, come on over. So I went over. I applied. I got a job at the BBC as a 20, maybe 21. I can't forget what I was a year old. And it was terrific because I worked three days on and I had three days off. So three days off, I took to the subways. I found out that you can make good bank in the subways playing music. Uh, You'd go in the morning and 
uh, uh, go to all the best places uh, there. To spend about a half hour writing your name on the wall at what they'd call the pitch because you pitch mm-hmm. a case down, and it was it was it was good. You could, just long enough in the tunnel to to echo, and people can hear you and decide if they want to give you money by the time they get to you. And clink, you know, you get a pound or two or you know some pence. So you'd book like four or five maybe six pitches, depending on how long you wanted to be. And they honored it. It was it was an honorable British, it was very British and orderly. <laughs> you know, I was doing Dylan and Neil Young and the Beatles. And then the next guy would come along and say, right, it's my turn now, mate. And I'd say, uh, radio. <laughs> I'd go <laughs> off to the next one. And I'd come out of there with like, you know, 300 bucks. For what, after what year is this? This sounds so polite for any part of the world. It was very polite. It was 1979 and 1980. Nice. It was good for <laughs> journalism because you get drunks who come up and try and steal your money. You get people who come up and call you a scuzzy bum. You get the cops that come up and want to throw you off. You, you gotta you gotta handle them and handle them with a little bit of sugar. Except for the drunks that are trying to steal your stuff, you tell them to screw off. Uh, but the uh, the cops had come up and say. Uh, you know you can't play here because there were signs all over the subway saying busking not allowed fine of 100 pounds or whatever the hell it was and I'd uh, say well you know how about if I I do a song for you tell me what you want (laughs) (laughs) and and they'd they'd tell me I'd sing and I guess it you know worked for them because I never got busted uh, one of the most significant things that happened to me in the subways though was uh, Ralph McTell came up one day He's the guy that wrote this song called The Streets of London, uh-huh. which is a beautiful song. It goes, uh, let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of London. Then I'll show you something to make you understand. It's about poor people and homeless people in, in London way back then. So he he comes up and I'm playing some Dylan song and he says, uh, you know, I used to busk down here. And I say, you don't say really, huh? Yeah. Did you? And he says, I wrote a song about it. I said, really? Hand him the guitar. He sings this song. I think, holy oh, my God. God. <laughs> Oh. So I thought, well, I got to learn that song now. So I've oh. been singing that song ever since. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I mean, why didn't you just stay there forever? You, you got oh. back to the Bay Area somehow. Yeah, I would have loved to. I, uh, you know, as young men are wont to do, I fell in love with a, a New Zealand girl. And uh-huh. we, uh, uh, we took off and traveled around Ireland and, uh, you know, the north part of England and, um, you know, playing music. She would hold the hat, and she was pretty and blonde, so I made good money when she was holding the hat. <laughs> and uh, uh, then, you know, she, we thought, okay, let's go back and do some of our careers. And so she went to Kiwi Land, and I came back here, and I found a job at the Lodi News Sentinel, uh-huh. which a little little daily out in the in the valley. I loved it. It was just terrific. It was, you know, you, you cover everything that moves. It was the best practice I could have imagined. I covered cops. I was hired as a police reporter, so yeah. I covered cops. And boy, Lodi had its action, man. Uh, you know, I worked at of, the Santa Maria Times, uh, so same situation: agricultural, uh-huh. small paper. Yes. And I remember at the end of my shift, like, like people would call, and we were the sports desk, so we were the only ones left there. And I didn't get my paper, and so I'd, I'd deliver papers at the end of my shift, like on the way home. <laughs> I'd, like I'd have a couple papers I'd drop off. Yeah. It was. Um, it, it gets you in touch with the reader in a way that you don't, you know. Oh boy, does it ever! A bigger paper, yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. I, I used to like I I 
I used to say it was like pissing in a closet because everywhere you turn, it comes right back at you. Uh-huh. So you got to try to make sure it teaches you how to make sure you try to get it right and, yeah. and be respectful of your community, respectful of the people you're writing about. Yeah. So, so I did that for like a little more than a year. And then uh, uh, the Kiwi and I needed to be together. So I went to New Zealand and uh-huh. I lived there for a year. Uh, I was you know, I was stringing for UPI, which, you know, is a very, now a small wire service. Back then it was a real competitor with AP, but that paid crap. So I picked up the guitar and uh, I started playing downtown uh, bars and, and busking. Boy, I made every lunchtime I was the guy in the town square singing mm-hmm. this, that, and the other. And one day a guy named uh, Phil Royal shows up and he's singing loud at one end and I'm singing at the other end. We're trying to drown each other out. And he comes over and says, you know, why don't we try something together, mate? And we did. It fit immediately. We're, we've been a duet ever since. Wow, uh, you're still in touch. Oh, he's one of my best friends. Uh, in fact, he 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 uh, he did one of my songs about ten years ago. God, uh, long ago in uh, Australia on the on the radio because he's he's a pretty big touring act himself. And uh, it became a it's it's a it's a disgusting song. I wrote it when I was twenty uh, yeah. about you know abusing animals on the farm. Well, in Australia, that went over <laughs> really big. <laughs> It became a hit in the south of Australia. <laughs> and then I, you know, journalism. I, I really, I, I love playing music, but I really love being a reporter. And that's did, did you, so I came back. Was it long before you got to the Chronicle? And during this whole time, were you, were you interested in covering the homeless? I mean, was the homeless beat something that you had always sort of been touching on? Or did that come at the chronicle oh yeah no it i i did it at the, i did a bit of it in lodi when it was starting because uh as soon as reagan got elected he started cutting social service programs he started seeing trickles of homeless people then yeah. i spent that time overseas and you know when i was traveling as a street singer i'd sleep in doorways and you know in fields if if there was nowhere to i, I didn't care it was fun you know you put down your yeah, your your backpack and your guitar, and especially if the weather's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, outside was was not a mystery to me. Uh, but then when I came back, I wound up at the Oakland Tribune uh, mm-hmm. in 1985. And boy, Oakland Oakland had its share of uh, of, of poverty and uh, homelessness, uh, racial struggle. It was. It's a wonderful place to be a reporter. And in the mid '80s, it was owned by Bob Maynard. It was the only black publisher of a major metro in America, and we had a super diverse newsroom. I. It's where I met my wife Carolyn. She was a reporter there. I became an editor there, uh, and then I fought my way back to being reporting because I've been an editor, you know, in Lodi there and here. Uh, reporting is more fun. It's the most yeah. fun. So, when the 1989 earthquake hit, it rattled thousands of people into homelessness and that's when it really took over for me because i i made that a a a beat Mm -hmm. and i covered uh what was being done to help homeless people and what was failing in helping homeless people and what was being done to help poor people just fascinated the hell out of me uh and when i got hired at the chronicle in 92 i've i continued that i've always done homeless-based stories of the Chronicle, but also disasters and, you know, whatever the... I'm a general assignment guy uh, overall, but homelessness mm-hmm. is, is... 
has be has been a thing for me the whole time. And then it it hit another uh, hurdle, I guess, if you were in 2003, when uh, Robert Rosenthal, our managing editor at the time, uh, had just come into town from Philly, and he was appalled at the homeless issues here. And I'll tell you, before before then, uh, it had become a little tough to do a lot of homeless stories because people were kind of tired of it. Well, he said, ah, send a couple of your guys into the streets to do homelessness. So Brant Ward was this uh, gritty photographer. Uh, he and I had done some stuff uh, before, and he said, ah, put these two guys out on the streets. So we lived on the streets for six months. And it, it, the, mid, the, the first day we were out, we, he and I looked at each other and said, Man, we don't want to do just a bunch of sad sack stories, you know, the, the, the plight of the homeless. We want to figure out how to fix it. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So homelessness over all these years, what are you learning? Um, I can tell you don't get tired of it. You're a very empathetic person, but you're also, I don't know if, pragmatism is the word but you know you're realistic about things and yeah. i'm wondering you know what kept you on the beat and what you've been learning over the years how have things changed how have they stayed the same well there's there's been a sameness to it that's very depressing in the you know decades ago i would i would talk to homeless advocates and they'd say ah it's all the feds fault they you know reagan cut the hell out of all the the funding that helped poor people uh, and you think, okay, well, you know, that's a that's a macro answer to a micro question. You know, what are you going to do about housing people in your city on your streets uh, mm -hmm. into into you know housing right where you are? I over the years I have come to understand they have a point. Uh, this is a country that has the worst split between rich and poor is, since the 1880s with the Gilded Age. And uh, you know, as a a guy who became a reporter. Right in 1980, I've watched that evolution, and it, you know, it, I, I try not to sound like some activist or, you know, a, a fist waving, you know, protester of some kind. But you know, we've been screwed. The the working class, as a guy who used to work for minimum freaking wage, you know, cleaning toilets and cutting sandwiches, uh, that class. I used to be able to afford an apartment cleaning toilets. It's it's very hard to do that now. Um, it's uh, uh, the 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 money has gone to the top, and the screw has gone to the bottom, mm -hmm. and it's it's it, that's the 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 nut of it right there. If you can't make enough money as a, a, a low income person uh, to have dignity and uh, be able to live, bad things result. Uh, you know, we have generations now of people who who've gotten into drugs and and uh, you know bad behavior with their kids and uh, feeling hopeless, and it, it's just self perpetuating. And there, what I like seeing is the the armies, the the armadas of people who are trying to help. Uh, to some extent, they're pushing against the tide, uh, but they do make 
inroads. And you know, when I look at San Francisco, which I have to concentrate on most, you see that there are hundreds of millions of dollars spent on the problem, and people whine that it's, ah, why are you spending all the money on that? Why waste it on them? Just make them pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Homeless, especially chronically homeless people, can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Kevin, I, I think every time a project comes out, um, and we have this big homeless project coming out, it'll be out, I think, by the time this podcast is out, um, and you're often at the center of it. Um, one thing I think about when I read that is how little people know, um, not just about your story, but about your music. Um, you continue to make music. Uh, you're in a very high-profile uh, newsroom band that has, happens to have a couple <laughs> of you know, Woodstock-era legends who come in and play. Um, and you continue to write songs and, um, you know, and, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that today too. Um, oh, thanks. You write songs and you write songs about your job. Um, has that kind of always gone on as you've been doing this? I do. I love it. For me, uh, at this point, um, being a middle-aged guy and written a lot of songs, hey, writing a, a, a song for me is, is like writing a, a story or, or a fiction or a poem. I do all of those things. It's an expression. And what's really cool about music is you get the, the added, uh, uh, you know, the added thing of a melody on top. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. almost mystical how it, it can communicate in a very heartfelt way. And I love doing that. I've written songs for, you know, my wife, my daughter, uh, and the homeless folks uh, that I run into. I, I, uh, I've had some real uh, touching experiences with some of them. Um, I'd like to you to introduce a couple of them, and I have the tracks, um, so we're going to play a pre-recorded track. But um, uh, the first one that I heard about someone who you met um, during one of your your homelessness uh, uh, stories that you were working on with Brant, um, could you yeah. kind of introduce this and just tell me a little bit about how this happened? Yeah, uh, it was uh, in two thousand three. Brant and I were starting our six months in the street and we were walking around and he saw what he thought was a a little girl walking down the street and he thought wow a kid you know she looked homeless and uh, she was so he went up to talk to her and she turned around and she was uh, uh she was a little person everyone on the street called her little bit or the midget mm -hmm. uh and uh she essentially turned her she had this raspy voice and was tough as nails and Brand said, hey, I'm from the Chronicle. And she said, fuck off, <laughs> immediately. <laughs> and so he and I both went over there at some point. Turns out she was part of a little colony living on a traffic island at Mission and uh, uh, Van Ness called Homeless Island. And there were about a, a dozen, all of them junkies, some of them street hookers like a little bit, because she, she – uh, she sold herself on the street because uh, a lot of guys would drive in from the suburbs. They thought they were getting to uh, have sex with a kid, so they'd hire her oh. for fifty bucks a bang. Wow. It was just, and we, you know, I watched several of those interactions happen. And she, uh, you know, it was how she made money. It was just tragic. She was addicted to crack and heroin, um, and you know, all her friends in the on the island were also crack and heroin addicts, and she just 
uh, she just broke our hearts. Brant and I both just fell in love with who she and 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 most of the islanders were. Some of them were really crusty characters. They didn't want to have to do, didn't want much to do with anyone. But oh man, they had all been someone's kid. They all had hard lives. Little bit was abused as a kid, thrown out early. Uh, and then as a, a little person had a hell of a life and she she the fact that she managed to 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 retain her her strength and her dignity just really it it just bowled me over in a bowled yeah. over brand he always called her bit let's go see bit on the island he'd say and we'd go uh he'd go hang out and one day when you we caught her a one well, no, year it was one month it was in the six months we knew her for years actually uh but uh, in the six months, it was her birthday, so we went and got her a cake at Safeway and took it over there to the island. And uh, she's got her shopping cart there, and uh, we say, "Hey, little bit happy, happy birthday!" And she says, Rawr! "Grabs it and then <laughs> clunk, dumps it in the in the cart where it goes at a forty five degree angle, and the whole cake goes <laughs> to the to the edge." <laughs> then she goes off to score some crack. So we're hanging out for a while, and she comes back later and says. Uh, everyone else is by then collected, and she says, "Hey, it's my birthday." So they all come over. Uh, says, "Look, Brant, Kevin got me a cake." So she <laughs> takes the top off this thing. It was like a flock of seagulls. I swear, in like thirty seconds tops, it was gone in their hands, in their mouths. It yeah. was it, it just <laughs> done, and then it was back to panhandling and scoring heroin or whatever the hell they had ahead of them. Uh, and she, she was just. She was always crusty, and her first answer was always, you know, fuck off when when she when you try to talk. But as we got to know her, uh, uh, we would have these really t- t- touching conversations, and and you know, because we were interested in what her real life was, and not a whole mm. lot of people were interested in her real life past sex or drugs. And uh, she, there were moments when she'd cry talking about you know, hoeing. She'd say, "Hoeing is hard, you know, being a hoe is really really sucks." And yeah. It's uh so, but early on, uh, when she really wasn't sharing much, um, I wrote this song about sitting on the sidewalk with her, trying to get her to talk to us, and I called it a little bit. Little bit, come and tell me what you'd find. Tell it to me, true and say it honest. I know you're feeling sick, you're feeling tired A little bit come and say what's on your mind The dirt, the street, the walls and trees are empty But you don't even see them half the time Just twice a day the brown bag makes you better So when you're on your back you're feeling that's flowing all around us but no one wants to hear you no one else can see so a little bit come and tell me what you find a little bit come and tell me what you see a little bit do you know what you see can you tell me what you see
Um, I think we have another one that is uh, homelessness-related, the day after, day after Christmas. Uh, I'm in another band called Finding Fable, uh, Laurie and Sam Hawk, who it's, it's wonderful singing with them. The Irish Newsboys, are, we're a fun band. You know, it's got mm-hmm. Barry Melton and Peter Albin and these guys from Woodstock and, and, and wonderful guys and, home, and, 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 you know, my newspaper pals. Well, uh, Sam and Laurie and I are three-part harmonies. Uh, and we do the, you know, the touching, empathetic songs, and uh, they hate my gross songs. They you know, <laughs> will not even listen to them, let alone yeah. play them. <laughs> so, so we uh, we did this song. Uh, we did an EP one year. Um, that was a few years back, where one of Lori's songs was on the on the back. It was a Christmas song, and then this this incredibly depressing Christmas song of mine was on the the other side of the. Of the, of the, well, these they're not sides these days. It was a two-song EP, and we put it out. And this thing got played on uh, uh, a few stations in the um, in the Sierras and oh, KGO, and you know, a couple of TV stations had us on to sing it. Uh, nice. And I I appreciated. I I loved that people wanted to hear about this this problem. And I love you hear Lori's song, Lori's voice on the thing and, and she, boy, she's she's a wonderful singer and so Sam too. Sam's kind of the arranger and uh uh Lori's the $1000 voice uh with the great harmonies and we had a good time recording this one. On the day after day after Christmas I was thinking of all that's gone bad. I was thinking of life and the journey And the times that we've never had Between fighting and crying, living and dying There's supposed to be laughter and peace But from all that I've seen of what's in between The ones who need most get the least but they'll sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It always starts out oh so hopeful. It's all the presents and the cookies and cheer. We all say I love you and how do you do? But then look back over the year. There's still millions without work, millions who are hurt, and no sign of any relief. And the ones who are in charge, well, they're living large, and don't care if we crawl or we breathe. And they'll sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah, they'll sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. On the day after day after Christmas, when the orgy of gifts is long done, the well-wishing is over, the visits are over, We're through with what's supposed to be fun Next up is New Year And if we're still here Let's hope that there's laughter and peace But from all that I've seen Of what's in between 
Those who need the most will get the least Still they'll sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah, they'll sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah, they'll sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing these stories and sharing your songs. Um, we're going to wish you farewell now because you have like three deadlines today, I know. Um, but <laughs> but uh, I, I just wanted to say we're going to say goodbye and then we're going to go through the usual outro and I'm going to tell you to subscribe to The Chronicle. And then at the very end, I'm going to play a third song, A Place Like Home, which... Uh is about newsrooms. Um, that's what I got when I listened to it, and, and just about kind of the camaraderie of journalism and, and the Chronicle, and it touched me greatly, and uh, thanks for sharing that one, too. Oh, thank you very much. I, I'd love to... I wrote that, one for, wrote that one for Dave Perlman, our 98-year-old you know, science writer who just passed away over 100 years old. And it's, I, I think you feel the same way about newsrooms that I do. It's, it's, it really is a family. The family, the, the word family gets overused, but you know, we're, uh, we're a unit and it's, and you, you invest your heart in it. I, it really I miss it right now. And I hope we get back there. I mean, oh, when this yeah. is all over, I hope they didn't just tell us eh, everybody keep working at home. I mean, I love that part of it. Just, you know, a couple times a day, I just do a lap around the newsroom you know, like I'm a pool sweep, just to kind of soak it in and see everybody. And and I hope, Kevin, that we can see each other like that again. God, I hope so too. Yeah. So thank you so much. And uh, again, keep listening, because at the end, uh, a third Kevin Fagan song's coming up here. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Kevin Fagan. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com pod. Started out those years ago No way you'd ever know Through the crazy endless show To be a place that felt like home Cause home is where you get to be the most of who you are 
when it's time to leave you hope that took you far you went far is in the mirror now you see everyone you've come to be a healer a guide a scribe a poet with steel in your eyes so take the good of what you've seen and throw out all the rest recall the times it all worked out think of us at our best cause when you started out Become a part of us and so You'll take us with you when you go You'll take us with you 